This podcast is produced by Clarence Valley Community Church. If you benefit from our ministry and you would like to support us, details can be found at our website, cvcc.com.au. There you can also find out more details about our church. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 21, and we're going to be going through to the end of the chapter. So Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 21. And I'm reading from the ESV version. Hear now the word of the Lord. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written, In the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would see death. He would not see death until he had seen the Lord Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, and that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what had been said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Philaniel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to thank God or give thanks to God to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong filled with wisdom, and favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast had ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposed him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him amongst their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. 
After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and with favor with God and man. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for this wonderful truth about the birth narrative of Jesus and all of the different ways that he fulfills the law of you. Lord, we know that he, as our representative, goes before us. He is our hero, our saviour. And Lord, he is our all in all, the very provision that you have given to us and all that we will ever need. May we rest securely in all that he is to us in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the greatest miracle in the Bible that you can think of? Many would perhaps point to the resurrection as the greatest miracle of all, and I think you can probably make a pretty good case for that. When I think about the greatest miracle of all, though, I think the resurrection, pretty spectacular, but it makes sense that God could do that. It's not too hard for God to raise somebody from the dead. After all, he brought us into life. For me, there is another contender for the greatest miracle of all, and that is the incarnation. Incarnation is just a fancy word for enmanment. God himself put on human flesh. We use the word carnal to mean something that is fleshly. Jesus was incarnated, the God-man, the one who lived in eternity past and was there for all eternity and brought the very world into existence, the, the very word of God through which everything was created the one who was adored and worshipped by angels, Yahweh himself putting on our flesh. What a thing. For me, that's the, that's the greatest miracle of all because it almost blows the mind. How could God, the infinite God, come to us as a man, as one of us? And the more I grow older, the more I realize the fragility of the human state, the, the more I see my own frailty, the more I am surprised about how God himself could come into this broken and fallen world as one of us. But he did. That's the beautiful message about Jesus Christ. He did come. And he is God's provision. He is the one from God and, and God presents him to us as, as his perfect, obedient son and the one who will satisfy all of us if we'll but have faith in God. He is the answer to self-sufficiency. He's a challenge to self-sufficiency. And this is one of our deep problems as, as sinners. Right from the beginning. One of the things that Adam and Eve wanted was this sort of self-sufficiency. They wanted the knowledge of good and evil. 
we are exactly the same. We want to be self-sufficient. We know Jesus' own words about the rich man, the fact that, that the rich particularly have a hard time. He, he talks about the fact that it will be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. I've got news for you. You might not feel like it, but we are astronomically wealthy compared to not only the, the given world today, but particularly times gone past. I think about last night as I, as I sleep in my bed, I don't think of myself as a particularly wealthy person. But as I sleep in my nice comfy bed in my air-conditioned room, having enjoyed a meal out of my fridge that I got out of my cupboard, uh, cooked on a stove, in fact it was, it was cooked in an air fryer, which was a gift, thank you Natalie. As I think about all of these things, the fact that we've got water coming out of our tap, it's so easy to fall into this kind of self-sufficient complacency. We can provide for ourselves. We can go to work. We can, we can put money away. We tend to have a little bit left over, even if we are generous in the way in which we give to the kingdom of God. We are wealthy. It's too easy, in Australia particularly, to be self-sufficient. And this self-sufficiency can display itself in multiple ways. All of us are trying to make ourselves happy, and that's not a bad thing. I'm, I'm not one that thinks that happiness is a bad thing. I think it's a worthy pursuit. I think just often our, our goals for happiness are too small, not too grand. Be happy. Pursue your happiness. But often we'll do this in multiple ways. We're buying nice houses, buying nice cars, having a, a worthy career, one that will be respected in amongst our peers. We can also do this in other ways. We can do this through self-destruction. We can do this through alcoholism, or through drugs, or through debauchery. All of these things are displays of our, of our want and our, our drive to self-sufficiency. Jesus is actually the answer to that. The very fact that God would take on our flesh and would come to us as, as the, the one who's supposed to satisfy us tells us that our self-sufficiency is worthless. We can't do for ourselves the thing that we need. The greatest thing that we need is actually to stand before God in a worthy way. If you are here today and you feel unworthy, if you do not feel like you can live up to God's standards, if you don't feel like you're good enough in your own eyes, that, that you fail not only God or your fellow man, but yourself, if you're in that position, trust me, you're in a far better position than the vast majority of people in this country. If you do not feel like you are a good person, you are blessed. Because hopefully, you'll take your eyes off yourself and you'll put them on the place where God has provided and that is in the person of Jesus. As we work through our text, I want you to take, take particular notice to how often Luke mentions the law. The law was given to us for a number of reasons. One of them was to bring us to the end of ourselves. It was to realize that when we look at ourselves in comparison to our neighbor, or perhaps we look at ourselves in the mirror, we can, we can think that we're doing okay. In evangelism, it's actually pretty often when you ask people, well, are you a good person? You, the common response is, well, I, I think I'm doing okay. I'm doing all right. I'm not Hitler. Like, that's the standard. I'm doing okay. But when you look at yourself within the, the mirror God provided by God and his law, you have to admit, 
I'm not good enough. If I need to stand before God someday, and we do, if we need to stand before God one day as our judge, we need something better than our own record. We need what God provides for us in Jesus Christ. This text opens up with something marvelous. Think for a moment. This is God. This is God incarnate. This is God in flesh. And these are the words that are being spoken of him. At the end of eight days, he was circumcised. He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Jesus was circumcised. Now, the name Jesus in and of itself is impressive. It means Yahweh or Jehovah is salvation. That's what his name means. This, is, this was the prediction that he would be Elohim, he would be God with us. Emmanuel. Here he is, God presented before us as an eight-day-old baby. Yahweh, a baby, being circumcised. The salvation provided for us by God. Now, this is circumcision is important. It's, it's important for the first, in the first point in that the circumcising actually identifies Jesus with the rest of his people. He's a Jew, born to Jews. Being Jewish, he must be circumcised. It ties him through to the covenant and the sign of the covenant right back to Abraham in, in Genesis 17. Even this God-man must keep the law of God. His parents are obedient. One of the things that shines through all of this is that his parents are devout. They are righteous people. God didn't make a mistake when he gave Jesus to Mary and to Joseph. It's actually a challenge to all of us, particularly those of us who are parents, to think about this. How important in the ministry of Jesus were his parents? God handed them perhaps the most important task that any parent has ever been handed. Jesus had to fulfill a righteousness. They do a really good job of looking after Jesus and making sure that he's, he does everything necessary according to the law. Circumcision on the eighth day was something that was commanded. And in verse 22, we find out that, they, that when the time comes, according to the purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, the, the reason for the purification is that Mary has given birth. This is also something that's perhaps shocking in our day. Now, Mary, going through the normal task of reproduction, gives birth. And according to the law of God, particularly with the firstborn child, there had to be a redemption through sacrifice. Mary wasn't even actually allowed to attend properly yet. She's not allowed to attend the temple just yet completely. She is ceremonially unclean. And so in the, in the right time, in accordance with the law of Moses, they come down to Jerusalem. Now this is a trip of about 150 kilometers. I'm about to drive to Sydney this afternoon and my trip to Sydney in my air-conditioned car will be easier, much easier than it will be for Mary for this. 150 kilometers after giving birth on a donkey or on foot. 
they come down to Jerusalem. And a, and a sacrifice is made for the purification of Jesus. To redeem him for the fact that he is the firstborn. Because according to the law, the requirement is that the firstborn would be given to God. Now, God makes a provision for that in two ways. One, he does it through a, an offering. And the other one is through the Levites. Rather than God taking the firstborn of every family, he says, well, I'll have the Levites as my own special possession. Jesus is not born according to the Levites. He is born according to the house of David. He's from Judah. And so he is redeemed and Mary is, is made sacrifice. She is made ceremonially clean through offering. You think about that. Whenever a child was born in accordance to the law, God needed humanity to offer sacrifice. Is that sin? Is it a sin for people to be born? Well, no, it wasn't sin for people to be born. That's, that's part of God's, God's will. But so it was that all of humanity, the moment that they come into life, just the very nature of them being born, they're born as sinners. But not Jesus. Jesus wasn't born a sinner. The only righteous one that had ever lived. But still, according to the law, this had to happen. If Jesus hadn't been purified in this way, then sin would have had hold of him. But God in his providence and in his care made sure that his parents did what was according to the law. Now, also I want you to notice something else. I want you to notice the fact that it's a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons that are offered. There's often some dispute about whether or not Mary and Joseph were particularly wealthy people. This should satisfy that. Normally what was to happen is they were to offer a young lamb. But Mary and Joseph were so poor that they're allowed to make the offering of a poor person, a peasant, in the offering of a turtle dove or two pigeons. It's what must be offered. Now, this was actually God's plan from the beginning. And in fact, Paul actually says in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption this is why Paul has been, uh, Luke has been put stressing so much the fact that it, even from the very first moments, the earliest moments of Jesus' life, he was born under the law. He had to go through all of this. God submits himself to his own law. For you. This is, this is God basically saying that that law that tells you that you're not good enough, I've got it. I've got it right here in Jesus. I've got it. Jesus has been born under the law so that we can be offered adoption. He has satisfied every longing that the law brings up so that we could go free, so that we could be sufficiently given over to God and made righteous according to Jesus. 
But it's more than that as well. It was the fact that, that Jesus had a ministry. Jesus still has that ministry today. Jesus' ministry is that of a priest, a high priest. In Hebrews 2.10 it says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, don't miss that, he's talking about Jesus, that this, this Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, if, if anything exists, it exists through Jesus and for Jesus, he is the beginning and the end of everything in creation, so it was fitting that for he, in bringing many sons to, the go- to, to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Ultimately, this experience for Jesus was an ultimate humiliation. So humbling is it for God to become man, even perfect man, even a great man like Jesus, that it's suffering. We like to think of the fact that maybe Jesus' suffering was something that was experienced only at the end of his life. It wasn't. All of the humiliation that Jesus experienced from his birth through to his death, all of that is so that he could present us to God, that we could be brought through to glory. Where are you in any of that? Nowhere. This part of it is, is completely by the grace of God. It's completely by his kindness. For you, all of this is free. God has said, come, but come without price. He doesn't require you to pay for this. He doesn't require you to earn it. He doesn't require you to, to give enough money or, 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 or do anything. He just says, come, I've provided it all. I've, I've provided it all in Jesus. And for some In the Western world, particularly, this is too much. There are some in the Western world who will say, you know what, I can't accept this as a gift. I can't take it as a gift. If I I could just pay a little bit for it, if I could just do a little bit for it, if if God could bring me so far and then I could come the rest, I'd take it. But God won't allow you to do that. He wants you to see that Jesus is all in all. If you feel like a failure for whatever reason, take comfort in the fact that God can only take failures. Being a failure is a qualification. The only thing necessary for your salvation is your sin. That's all you have to offer. You need a hero. And that hero is God himself, born as a man and given the name Jesus. Yahweh saves. In the second part of the story, Jesus comes to two people. He comes to Simeon, and he comes to a lady, an old lady named Anna. Simeon, the first, is a devout man. He's, he's one of these ones who had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, this, this word consolation, it just means comfort. He's been waiting for God to come and comfort them. This is, this is a man who's waiting and watching for God to do exactly what he does in Jesus. This is a really good attitude to have. If you feel broken, if you, don't, if, you feel, if you feel the weight of the world upon your shoulders, if you feel attacked, if you're looking around at the world and you're going, it's so chaotic, everything's falling apart, I just, I just long for the, for the older days where things weren't so crazy. 
If you're looking at the world trying to attack your children, where's the consolation? Where's the comfort? Saying to Simeon. Simeon is a Jew living in the Roman Empire, looking around going, God has promised all of these things. When, when is he going to come and comfort us? We've been suffering for so long. The suffering that was experienced in the early parts of the 20th century to the Israelite nation seems to have gone on since the beginning of history. He wants comfort. And God in his infinite glory had come to him by the Holy Spirit and revealed to him that he would not see death until the comfort had come in the name the Lord's Christ meaning the Messiah, that, that it was revealed to Simeon that he would see the Messiah. And so the Spirit drives him into the temple when his parents bring the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. There it is again. And so in this moment, he sees Jesus and he picks him up and says, Blessed God. And he blesses God and he says, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. My eyes have seen your salvation. But the thing, he's holding a baby. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine taking up Seth, for example? Holding him and going, wow, right here is God's salvation in this tiny little baby. Maybe a month, month and a half old. Lord, you have provided your salvation. And you have prepared in all the presence of all people a light for the revelation of the Gentiles and for glory for your people Israel. Jesus satisfies the very longing of this, of this aged Jewish man. But not only that, he, he points forward and he projects this time when Jesus will not only save Israel, he will not only bring comfort to Israel, he'll bring comfort to the Gentiles us. Jesus is the Savior not only, he's not only the Messiah or the Savior of Israel, he is the Savior of all people. I think it's interesting that Jesus doesn't come to kings, to rulers, to leaders, to priests who recognize the significance of him. That's not who he comes to, but rather he comes to simple folk who was simply waiting and looking for God to come and rescue his people. These are the eyes of faith. This is part of the issue for those who are self-sufficient. Simeon, a man who's given great prophecy about the ministry of Jesus Christ, is not self-sufficient, nor is Anna. Anna had been a widow for so long. And she just simply came day in, day out into the temple to worship God with fasting and prayer by day and night. And it coming up, we're told in verse 38, and it coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to the speaking of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. These are the people that Christ comes to. To simple people. To people who are just waiting for God to move. And their joy is made complete. Now, for, for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who are actually saved, it's actually very easy for us to say, well, I've been saved, I'm trusting in Christ. 
and then to forget that that should have impact upon our everyday life. Simeon, Anna, their joy is completed in the coming of Jesus. If self-sufficiency is the major barrier to joy in Christ, Jesus is the answer to it. He is God's great comfort. Now, I think as well it's important for us to think about this, this prophecy that comes through Simeon. Simeon blesses in verse 34. Simeon blesses them and says to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. So Jesus is going to be like this dividing force. He's God's comfort. He's God's consolation. He's God's saviour. But he's going to divide. Not everybody was going to look upon Jesus with the same faith that Simeon had. The ultimate joy comes not simply in the coming of Jesus, but in the accepting of him as the Christ, as God's salvation. For those who would accept they would be risen up, simple people like Simeon and Anna would be risen up. Simple people like you and I in Jesus Christ are risen up. And those who reject him are brought down and brought low. I agonized for a long time over this, word, this phraseology and a sign that is opposed. You think about it, think about that in a literal sense. If I said to you there is a sign that is opposed, maybe you will actually picture driving along and seeing a sign. You want to go to McLean. I don't know why, but you want to go to McLean. You see a sign that points in that direction. And you reject its leading. And you either drive too far or you go in the complete opposite direction. That's what Jesus would be to some. There would be some who would see the sign and would come and would be drawn to everything that God is doing in Jesus. There would be others who would see the sign and would reject it and go the opposite way. They would say that Jesus isn't the one. And so there is a risk There is a danger. There's a danger ultimately, and I think eternally, in the missing of Christ, in not seeing that he is actually God's provision, that that you are not enough in of yourself, that you must actually come to Christ. There's a danger in missing that. And that danger is to be brought low. God will humble you. There will come a day where your self-sufficiency will stand no more because God will bring you low. Ultimately, that is when you stand before Jesus Christ as judge. But I think we get caught up in this as well. I think Christians who have an eternal hope in Jesus get caught up in this as well. Jesus is supposed to be a constant sign of everything that God is doing. And how often do we get distracted? How often do we look at other things in the world to satisfy us? How often do we get caught up in just the everyday life of this world rather than having our satisfaction in Jesus? How often do we want to raise ourselves up? I'm tempted by this. I want people, I want my peers, I want my age to look at me as somebody who is wise. I want them to look at me as somebody who is articulate and worthy of listening to. I want my age to raise me up. And yet, 
if you hold to Jesus Christ, particularly in our day, and all of his teaching, if you hold to everything that's been revealed about Jesus Christ as gospel truth, your age will bring you low. If that's a deterrent for you, you're missing out. You're missing out of the ultimate joy that's offered in Jesus Christ. And if it's an ultimate deterrent for you, if you choose the world and everything that's offered in it instead of Jesus, then you're opposing the sign that is Jesus. Come to Christ. Come and see. Jesus is actually enough. I think in this final part and these final 11 verses as well from 41 through 25, 50, 52, sorry, there is this, this fact that Jesus comes with his parents to the feast and the Passover. His parents come to Jerusalem every year for this. It wasn't actually required by law. But his parents are so devout that they come with this boy year in, year out. And when he's 12, they bring him down and a significant event happens. Jesus is brought by his parents they go about the weekly task of, of being there and, and hanging out with their other cohort from, from, from Galilee, from Nazareth. And then they decide to return home after the festivities are done. And they get about a day's journey and they realize their son isn't there. Uh, who's ever lost a child in a shopping center? Yeah, I, I don't have kids, but I've done it. And when it's not your kids, it's worse. Because you know you're going to have to answer to a mum. I've done it. It's the scariest feeling in the world. Mary and Joseph realize after going a day's journey that they don't have Jesus with them. Jesus is the ultimate home alone. Jesus has been left behind in Jerusalem and they, they go and they frantically search. You can picture it, can't you? The mother, father frantically searching for this one that had been given to them amongst all of these people and they don't find him. And so they go another day's journey back to Jerusalem and then they see the boy, Jesus, seated in the temple, seated around the teachers, and the teachers are, profound, are profoundly amazed at all that Jesus is and is saying. Verse 49 is the crux, though. His parents come to him and they say to him in verse 48, they say, with astonishment, his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, I don't think Jesus has sinned here. In fact, I know that he has it. He can't have it. He's a 12-year-old boy. 12-year-old boys tend to get fairly fixated on things. Whenever I worked in a school, that was one of the things that I noticed. I still, to this day, go and teach SRE in schools. And it's actually very hard sometimes to get 12-year-old boys to, to leave what it is they're focused on and actually focus on what they need to. I don't think they do that in rebellion necessarily. And that's certainly not what Jesus was doing. He's just in his father's house. And so when his mother and father come to him and they say to him, why have you treated this way? Jesus is like, why are you shocked by this? I've come to the temple. And he says, behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he says, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying he spoke to them. Jesus realizes, even from this early moment, who he is. He knows who he is. He knows that he is, a, he is special as God's son. In fact, nowhere else in the Old Testament 
Nowhere up until this point have we ever had anybody recorded as calling God my father. Jesus is the first. The first to call him my father. He recognizes the significance of his place in the world. Mary and Joseph didn't even understand it completely. You get it. You can kind of see it. He's God. Of course he's going to be in his house. Of course he's going to be there and worshiping. Of course he's going to be teaching. That makes sense. He's God. What doesn't make sense is the next part. It says in verse 51, he went down with them to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured all these things up in her heart. God submissive to Mary. But this was right because he's a man. He was a child. Of course he should give and, and, and he should give honor to his mother and be submissive. This is part of what it was for him to fulfill the law. Verse 52 is also a surprise. We're told that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. No special download from the cloud. He's not magically given knowledge. He's not magically given wisdom. He's not magically given favor. He earns it. Why did Jesus have to earn it? This is one of the great questions. <coughs> Maybe we could accept that God would have to come as a man because only a man sacrificed for men could satisfy God. But why not just come as a 33-year-old man? Why not just come as Adam, as a fully-fledged, grown-up man? Ultimately, it's because of this. Because Jesus would need to represent us as a priest. Hebrews 4, 15-16 put it this way. We're told, We do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in a help to help in a time of need. That's why Jesus had to go through all of this. This is why Jesus as an eight-day-old baby had to, be, had to be circumcised. This is why he had to submit to his mother. This is why he had to increase in a normal human way in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. God did that all for you. He did it for you so that he could be your high priest. There is no circumstance that Jesus hasn't gone through so that he could perfectly represent you. In fact, Jesus has had it far worse. Ask yourself this question. What, what's harder? What's, what brings more suffering in your life? What would bring more? To resist temptation, resist temptation, resist temptation, resist temptation, and sin. To do that over again in your life. Resist temptation, resist temptation, resist temptation, sin. Or to spend your 33 years on earth constantly resisting temptation. The answer is clear. Jesus' suffering and the resisting of temptation throughout the course of his life is a far greater suffering than we will experience. And he did it for you. He did it so that he could be your high priest. He could be the high priest. And what do priests do? Priests represent God to man and man to God. They offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin. 
so that, so that those who are unrighteous, those who are unholy could go free. That's exactly what Jesus has done. Even now, because we are not self-sufficient, we need Jesus to represent us before God. That's what he lives to do. He's your high priest. Because we could never atone for our sins. Not even an eternity in hell could atone for our sins. Not the fire of the wrath of God could atone for our sins. We need a substitute. We need Jesus. We need Jesus as the one who is the ultimate presentation of God's provision. Self-sufficiency will lead you to death and misery. Reliance and dependence and focus upon Jesus as the all-sufficient one, not only for eternal life, but your life now, is the only way to joy. It's the only way to satisfaction. He is the only answer and key to your desire. If you want happiness, drop your self-sufficiency, particularly eternally. No happiness is worth it that costs you misery in eternity. You want a happiness that will last throughout all eternity. And you want a happiness that will take you through your darkest moments even now. Only Jesus can satisfy both. If your self-sufficiency is, bringing, is, is keeping you away from those things, drop them. Look to Christ. Look to Christ ultimately in faith for your salvation. He is God's provision for you. Look to Christ now as well for your happiness. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for all that it is that you've provided for us in Jesus. Lord, we thank you. We know that ultimately we could never bring ourselves to you. We could never wash ourselves clean. We could never be the answer to our own misery. Lord, you have had to do it all. And so, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we honor you, and we trust you. In Jesus' name.